0: This afternoon, the Lord's Day before us is Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And how also the Gospel is summed up in our Lord's Day, especially pertaining to the virgin birth of our Savior. And we confess there, what do you confess when you say, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The eternal Son of God, who is and remains a true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn 20, the stanzas 1 through 4. beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we deal with the catechism, of course it is a familiar document to us as a way it sums up our Christian faith. And every time you go through it, you could say it kind of serves as a refresher in the basic doctrines of salvation. But the beauty of that is that as you review the various doctrines of salvation, you become much more comfortable with the gospel. And that also kind of makes you more competent and confident to be able to speak about your faith to others. So really, whenever you work through the catechism, you could say it has a double purpose. It refreshes you in the gospel of salvation. But every time you go through it, it also becomes an impetus to say, now when somebody speaks to me about the faith and they ask me a question about the faith, I am all the more ready to answer them. That's how I've been going through the catechism this time through. The sermon is taken from that series as kind of a double duty refresher in the doctrine so we can praise God and thank God, but also that basically the catechism sermons become an evangelism course. So also the things that are brought to the fore are brought to the fore for that purpose, to refresh us in our faith and to prepare us so that when somebody asks, we can give a good answer to the question that we are asked. Now in this particular case, we come of course to the doctrine of the virgin birth, Lord Jesus Christ being born from the Virgin Mary. And the way that the Catechism comes to that, it kind of has worked its way towards it. You know, on Lord's Day 11, it began an extensive section about all kinds of things pertaining to our Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with His names, Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. The Catechism is going to keep busy with things about our Lord Jesus Christ, to Lord's Day 19, in a very direct way, about all the things that He has done and is doing. But now, in Lord's Day 14, we move on from names and titles about our Lord Jesus Christ to also really what begins his life here on earth. And the catechism kind of takes us through his life step by step. Now, it's interesting, as we use the expression there, step by step, you can take that kind of on the, on the level, on the horizontal level, that you follow someone and you go through all kinds of steps, but we know that in life you can have just level steps on the ground, but also sometimes you have to go take steps down a staircase, and then you can go back up later on. What the Catechism is doing for us at that point is kind of following our Lord Jesus Christ through his life as it began here on earth, and it is showing to us that it is like a staircase going down, first of all, as we're going to go through all kinds of steps where he humbled himself, it's going to hit rock bottom when he is dead, buried, descends into hell. After which, again, he begins to come out of the grave, you have the steps where he exalts himself. Steps of humiliation, steps of exaltation. It's interesting when we have that section in the Catechism where our attention is drawn to the steps of humiliation, we can say there we see how our Lord Jesus Christ obtained salvation. All the things he had to do to secure our salvation from sin. And it comes to the steps of exaltation, we see how he begins to apply those benefits to us. So, We have to think about these matters, even though they are in a way very familiar matters, we need yet to be refreshed. May have heard these truths many a times, but when we think about them again, always new insights, and it's good to hear old truths again, but also that we will be equipped if someone asks us about our faith, and they say, now what about the birth of the Savior Jesus Christ? What is so special about that? Why is that so important? We have to be able to tell the person what it is about. We have to show that the incarnation really is an essential part of the whole gospel of salvation. Now, to understand it for ourselves, to be able to speak about it to others, we do well to reflect carefully on what exactly the incarnation is. And then also why, in the second place, the incarnation is part of our Lord's humiliation. We talked about the steps of humiliation. And then we wrap it all up by speaking about the way that the Incarnation is indeed essential for our salvation. So first of all, we're going to pay attention to what the Incarnation is. As we use these kind of words, incarnation, humiliation, then it might seem that that we're kind of using somewhat big words. Couldn't we say it in a bit of a simpler way, especially if we think of a situation where someone is going to speak to us about the Lord Jesus and we say now we have to speak about the incarnation and it is part of the humiliation and we could say we're going to lose a person just like that now as I say those words it is very well possible that you even say for yourself I wish the minister would use some different words because they're not even all that clear to me but really they should be clear to us if we have sat under the preaching of the gospel for many years and if they are strange to us then then actually we should be a little bit ashamed of ourselves Because if we think of some of the hymns that even we sing, Christmas coming up again, also sing it later on about when the Word became incarnate, for example. There we sing it. Now, when we speak about the incarnation, we we speak about the way that the Son of God became man. We're talking about the Christmas story. But this Christmas story is the story of the incarnation. Now I want to belabor this point a little bit about using a term like incarnation, because we need to be biblically, doctrinally literate. And we should never hesitate to, to use what some people might consider somewhat bigger words. Use the words of the church's vocabulary, also if ever a situation arises where we end up talking with an outsider about the gospel of salvation. because. We should always want people to become familiar. If we use a word that is a bit more difficult, but explain what the word means. We want other people to understand the gospel in its riches, not not give them kind of a watered down version. We shouldn't insult the intelligence of the people we speak with when we speak about the gospel and the faith. Simply explain your terms. So, the word incarnation. It's not that difficult. After all, we said we sing that. Even our children learn to sing those kind of songs, so we have to be familiar with it. The familiarity with that word is all the more important because when we, especially when we speak to others, then they might hear us say it, and they might actually have come to mind a term that they might hear in different circumstances, the word reincarnation. It's actually interesting, even in catechism class, sometimes when you bring out the word incarnation, how many children have heard the word reincarnation? And they kind of think they know what that means, but they're not so sure on the word incarnation. But we live in a global world, many different ideas floating around, so we might come across a word like reincarnation, and we know that that comes from the Hindu religion. Now, while the word reincarnation comes from a totally different religion, we can nevertheless use it even for ourselves to refresh our understanding, but also if we end up talking to someone else when we speak about the birth of our Savior. Because you know that the idea of reincarnation is that that people, actually all creatures, they say, kind of go through different lives. So when creatures die, they say, depending on how that creature lived, it will come back in a different bodily form. And if you were good in whatever body you were, then you might make it up this kind of a ladder as people slowly but surely are supposed to come back in different life forms till finally they leave this life. You know, there are even people in the counseling world who use this kind of technique and they say, oh, so you have certain hang-ups in your life well, that must have been some incident in your previous life. Maybe you lived in the 1600s, maybe you were persecuted as a witch, and that's why you have kind of a persecution complex in your life today. That's how people go about it, in all seriousness. They think they can explain present hang-ups by incidents in your previous life. But this is something totally different from what we are speaking about when we speak of incarnation. We are not speaking about people going, through many bodily existences, one after the other. For in fact, Scripture shows that you cannot speak of the incarnation, let alone the reincarnation of human beings or of any creature in this whole world. And that is so because the idea of incarnation suggests that there is some kind of existence before you come into life on this earth if you know from the scripture that there is no such thing life begins at conception i mean you think about ourselves there was no part of us that was there before we were conceived in our mother's womb and we were born into this world for when it comes to creatures in this world there is no incarnation Suggesting there was something before which came into a bodily form and also there is no reincarnation for people taking on or creatures taking on a different form in the next life. Get that clear. But in this world, there is no incarnation or reincarnation. But this is different when it comes to the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because here, we can talk about an incarnation. Someone came into a body, into the form of a creature. Because this is so for, with respect to our Savior, there was something before He came into this world. What was there before is that he always has been always will be the eternal son of god notice that for ourselves there was nothing before we were conceived and born for the lord jesus christ there was something that was before That's why also in the Gospel of John, when he writes about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, he does not describe the actual event, but but he puts it in terms that the Word became flesh. The Word, very clearly, that refers to the Son of God that was there before. That Word took on something he did not have before. He took on our human nature. Note that well. Here is really the marvel of the Christmas story the son of god who always has existed with the father he took on our humanity he took on that means our flesh and blood our whole nature you know we use the expression sometimes that you should try walking in someone else's shoes for a while well the son of god came and walked in our human shoes and he walked on this earth as a full-fledged human being. And the incarnation is so remarkable because there we see how the eternal Son of God remained true eternal Son of God, but he also became what he had not been before. He became true man. Now at this point, it has to be stressed that the Son of God truly became a flesh and blood human being. Which includes not only the physical dimension of life, but also what we might call the the spiritual, the emotional aspects. It's necessary to stress that, that he became a full fledged human being, a flesh and blood human being. Because this has been challenged in the history of the church repeatedly you're a bit familiar with church history you might have learned somewhere along the line in the early centuries they had this error called docetism it's important to pursue this because this error still pops up to this day error of docetism was rooted in the greek world of thought which thought that the the body was kind of inferior to the spiritual and in a way with this Greek idea of, of the relationship of the body and the spirit, they actually had a view of incarnation because they thought that the spirit always existed, but somehow, as a punishment, it got stuffed into a human body. And for the Greeks, in a way like the Hindus too, they, they hoped that eventually, by having all kinds of life cycles, eventually you pop out of this prison house of the body again. Notice that. They thought that, that the spirit had come trapped in the body. Why don't they get out? And because of this, because of this strong thinking in the Greek mindset, when the church also began to spread into the world under the influence of Greek thinking, they had to contend with that thought. And, and many people, they, they heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became flesh. And they thought, that can be. That, that, that can be. The Son of God should not be pictured as being stuffed into this this prison house of a human body. That's unacceptable. And so they said, look, it didn't really happen. No, it only looked like Jesus had a human body. That's where the term docetism comes in. It's the Greek term for it looked like. It only looked like Jesus had a body, but he didn't, because in their mind, that was awful how could the son of god get stuck in a human body they just couldn't fathom that but we said this error has prevailed the low view of human life in the body and soul has popped up in the history of the church repeatedly it's the background of monasticism which began around the end of the third century it involved a a denial of physical life in the way that they had vows of poverty and chastity you see you deny the need for for food and drink except basics and marriage oh that's part of the body you have to stay away from that kind of stuff that thought was that real christians didn't concern themselves with matters of the body beyond the very basics eventually showed up in the way that the thought developed priests who are then the really spiritual people oh they shouldn't marry they should remain celibate also showed up in ideas that began to develop around Mary. Because you know, to this day, the thought in the Roman Catholic Church is that Mary is forever a virgin. They could not fathom how the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ could ever involve herself in sexual relations. Because that really is considered in that mindset as as very low and basic and something to be rejected. That comes up there. That kind of thinking is prevalent still. And in the Reformation, you also could see it in some Anabaptist group. Well, I've heard about the Anabaptists, of course, most prominent for their rejection of infant baptism. But, but they also, in their circles, had some very peculiar ideas about the incarnation. No? They said the human body is so gross, so 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 below what is godly. They could not fathom the Son of God taking on a human body they could not fathom him walking in human shoes and then then they had this idea which is also kind of captured in in the relevant article in the belgian confession and that's rejected over there but they basically thought the lord jesus went through mary or the son of god went through mary like water goes through a downspout or a funnel you know if it rains rain falls on the roof goes in the gutters down the downspout out on the ground But the water never becomes affected by the downspout. They said, that's how it happened to the Son of God. He kind of flushed through Mary and wasn't really human in the end. That's how they took it. They could not fathom how the Son of God could become man. But that really can be the tendency to this day of super-spiritual people who look down on the matters of the body. And we see it even in a modified version today. But you can see it sometimes in the way that in certain circles, can even happen in our own circles, they begin to really speak highly of people who involve themselves in spiritual work, who do kingdom work, who deny or who forgo a regular kind of life of family and of a regular career, and they want to be involved in some kind of mission project. That's all they want to do. Well, it becomes a bit of a modern version of monasticism, and they look down and we feel looked down, looked down upon because, well, most of us, they pursue, we pursue family ways and a career, but in certain views, that is not really, that's not really spiritual. Really spiritual people don't do those kind of things, but they commit themselves just to kingdom work. Same kind of ideas that lies at the background, as we just explained, the whole idea of docetism, low view of life in the body. Now, this presence of this error, which looks down on the human body, and therefore on the Son of God taking on human form, explains why the Confessions spend so much time speaking about the Son of God truly taking on our humanity. It's interesting, if you compare the development of the Creeds. the Apostles' Creed, a very basic statement of faith, the Nicene Creed begins to expand on it, on the divinity of the Son, also a bit more about the Humanity of the Son, but especially the Athanasian creed, makes quite a point that the Lord Jesus Christ says, for example, Articles 31 to 33, that he is man from his mother's substance. There is no flushing through Mary there. The Lord Jesus Christ became a flesh and blood human being. If you would check his DNA, he was particularly, you could say, even of a Jewish genealogy. He was a true human body, human soul. And the presence of this error also in the time of the Reformation shows why it is explained also very clearly, Lord's Day 14, and we mentioned also Article 18 of the Belgian Confession. But now, of course, in the end, having explained all that, the historical developments there, we should be aware of that so we are ready when people come with their ideas and their thoughts or so much scriptural evidence that the Son of God, true Son of God, who always has been, took on our human nature. First of all, we think of the birth accounts in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And of particular significance are the parts we probably skip when we read those Gospels, and that are the genealogies, the family trees. Why is that important? Because It places the Lord Jesus Christ smack dab in the middle of the whole human race. It's interesting. Matthew, he moves from Abraham to the Lord Jesus. Luke takes it in reverse. He begins with the Lord Jesus. He works his way back, and he goes even beyond Abraham. He goes right to Adam. Adam, he says, the son of God. So we see then the Lord Jesus Christ has a family tree just like all of us, have a family tree. Remarkable. The Son of God, at the same time, is also shown to be fully a member of the human race. He became a member of the human race through the whole list of families, from Adam to Abraham to David to the child born from the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, it's interesting. For this reason, we also read Romans chapter 1, of course, you could say, but, but how, how can we say Jesus was truly the son of David, for example, when Joseph wasn't involved? Well, we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, that the son of God, as to his human nature, to his flesh, was a descendant of David. Spells it out. And Paul wrote to the Galatians that the son of God was born of a woman. He didn't say... He flushed through a woman. No, because in God's sight that is not evil to have children born. It is a good thing. That's the way he made things. He was born from a woman. And the Gospels, as we think of the Gospel accounts, all of them, as they show our Lord Jesus Christ, we see a fully human being in the person of our lord jesus christ all the things that he did all his human needs he needed rest he needed food he needed all those kind of things as he lived on earth and the letter to the hebrews also makes much of the lord jesus being truly human showing that he is the son of god at the beginning but then it goes on to say he was made like his brothers in every respect think of the end of chapter two And how did this come about? Well, we're told, of course, in the Gospel of Luke, especially in great detail, was all by the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit brought it about that the eternal Son of God was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, right at that critical point. Even though the Lord had used generation after generation, when it came to the critical point, He pushed the Father aside. At that point, he no longer needed Joseph or anyone to bring forth his son into the world by the Holy Spirit that came about. Now, keep in mind that the Lord had to override the natural process of, of husband and wife, because if he had just followed that process along, well, then he would have had just another human child. And if he would have said, well, I will take that child and I will put the spirit of my son in him, well, really, that's what the devil does. The devil, at certain times, he takes possession of people. We see that in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He kind of hijacks them and they lose lose control. But God did not say, well, I'll take that person. I will hijack his body for the purpose of my salvation. No, the Son of God was new in that sense that he took on his own body. It's all part of the mystery of our faith. The Son of God appeared in our body, a real flesh and blood, human body, just as much as we are human, so he was human in every respect. That's what the incarnation is about. Something that was not, that the Son of God who was there also added something. He took on our humanity. Now, it was said that this was then the first step of our Lord's ministry, but the first step, we call that, of His humiliation. Now, why is that? Why do we speak here of humiliation? That's our second point. Now, the key to understanding why the incarnation of the Son of God was the first step in His humiliation is found in what we read in Philippians chapter 2. It's interesting how Paul actually, at the beginning of that chapter, started by calling the Philippians to live humbly with each other. In humility, he said, consider others better than yourselves. And how did he drive home his point? That we should be humble in the way we deal with each other, think of the others better than ourselves. He pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he pointed also to his incarnation now it's significant to note that our lord is said to have humbled himself not in the fact that he took on our humanity as if that was something bad in itself no but in the fact that he laid aside his heavenly glory and made himself nothing taking the form of a servant that's significant he humbled himself taking on the form of a servant. He who with the triune God is to be worshipped and praised. He said, I will serve my people. That was a humbling activity. He humbled himself, we are told, even to the point of saying, I will die for my people. This is important because it makes us realize that the humiliation of our Lord was not in simply taking on our humanity. Humanity in itself is not wrong, is not evil. We think how God made us in the beginning. God saw that it was very good, flesh and blood human beings, part of his good creation. And it is also shown to be good in itself in the way that God is not saying, well, I will save your soul, but your body I'm going to get rid of. No, the hope of the Christian is, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So never look down on humanity, on the human body as such. It is part of God's good creation. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem all of us, our whole being. But the humiliation for our Savior is that that He took on our human form to save us from our sins. He He had to condescend from His heavenly Glory and majesty. He had to condescend to the level of a creature. The Creator, the Son was involved in creation too, the agent of creation. He humbled himself, saying, I will be with my creatures so I can save them. And that, of course, even in their weakened form. For we know that our Lord Jesus Christ had to face a life of trials and tribulations. You think of in the Gospels when we are told that he was baptized in the River Jordan, and next thing you know, there is the devil tempting him for 40 days and 40 nights. Think of the temptations he faced as he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was challenged by the Pharisees, even his own disciples argued with him when he spoke about that he had to die and be raised again. Peter said, can never happen, that cannot be. We see our Savior in his humanity, in his agony, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Keep in mind, as we read in the the letter to the Hebrews, he became like his brothers and sisters in every respect. And if you ever question how human your Savior really is, brothers and sisters, start reading the Gospels again. And don't think, oh, what a picnic it was for him just to walk through life as the Son of God in our human form. That's not what the Gospels show us. The Gospels show us our Savior fully walking in our shoes in all His difficulties, all His trials, all His tribulations. From a human point of view, there is always the tension. Will our Savior cave in, or will He succeed? Will He resist the temptation? He came in humility, laid aside His heavenly glory, did not show it off. He came, He took on the form of a servant to be our Savior. That's why... The incarnation is the first step of his humiliation, humbling himself for our sake. And that takes us to our last point, why the incarnation was necessary. Now, in a way, this question has been answered already way back in Lord's Day 5 and 6, because there we worked through how the only way to escape the wrath of God was by full payment for our sin. And that payment could only be made by someone who is a true and righteous man who at the same time is true God. You could not have one who looked like a man, but really wasn't. He had to be a true and righteous man. Now such a true and righteous man, we've noted already, could not be produced in the conventional way of a father and a mother receiving children. Because the pattern of life ever since Adam and Eve is that when they became parents, they received children in their own image. And their image meant a fallen image, sinful image, sinful nature. Sinful parents, without fail, produce sinful children. And there is not one exception in the whole world. I every parent basically knows that. When they receive a child and they're very thankful and happy and they might even say for a moment, oh, and it's sleeping nice and quietly, oh, what an angel. But they might not have thought so half an hour ago when the child was crying his lungs out because it didn't get what it wanted. No, the children, they all share the same genetic makeup of the parents and that is a sinful genetic makeup. No way around it. But that reality, that sinful parents produce sinful children makes us realize why the Son of God could not just take over a human being that was already there because as we know that earlier that's what the devil does he at times he would take possession of a person and the Lord Jesus Christ at certain times set people free from that bondage but more basic is that taking over a human being after conception when that child was already there would be too late Because that child already would have the burden of the guilt of original sin, would already have the the burden of the pollution of his own sins added to that. The only way to be truly human, to be that Savior, to be free from sin, to be righteous, was to butt into the human line before that line even starts. And that's why the Holy Spirit had to tell Joseph then, not now, Joseph. Yeah, yeah. Joseph was important because Joseph had to give his last name to the Lord Jesus, son of David. David Joseph was important for that, but, but biologically, he was not necessary. By the holy conception in the womb of Mary, the Son of God was given a human form, entered in our humanity without the burden of original guilt, without the stain of sin that would have been passed on in the conventional way which would have immediately disqualified Him from being our Savior. And note then how the focus in the Incarnation is on the way we have received our innocent and holy mediator. We see see the power of God, that He could do that. Of course, the God who can call all things into existence, you could say, bring forth a child without a father, but it's more than that. It is the Son of God taking on our humanity making him fully a member of the human race. And by the exceptional beginning of his life, he has made the exception to sin, which is so critical if he is to go be our spotless Savior, our mediator. We know that, not that the Lord didn't have to contend temp- with temptation and fight against sin. It's evident in the Gospels. But he was free from the original guilt and the pollution of Adam. Now, it's remarkable. We've taken one little part of our confession, one little aspect of the gospel, the incarnation, and yet so often you see, you look at a part, and you see the whole. The whole gospel is held before us. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, become man. And that incarnation, the first step of humiliation, is truly essential for our salvation. And and our faith is deepened every time we think about that, and we are reminded of that. And our attention is drawn again to the marvel of that birth. But the more we understand it ourselves, then also we are the more able to speak with others and, and give an account to anyone who might ask us. And not just your your basic answer, well, Jesus was born from Mary. No, we can go into details. We can go into details to say, look. This is the Son of God who always has been. He climbed into our human nature. It's different from the Hindus, able to say that. Different from the Hindus, not the same at all. This is unique. Here we have the Savior of the world. But above all, as we reflect on this, the more we understand it, the more we have reason to praise our God for His great and mighty wonder. When the Word became incarnate, made flesh at very God, giving us our only mediator, Amen.